So this is Sam Lee, and I'm here with Mark Williams for Humanities 3.01, Humanity by Design. Coming up this week, we're going to be starting our discussion of fascist aesthetics. And in particular, we're going to be looking at some of the film work of Lenny Riefenstahl. Among other things, we'll be seeing some clips from Triumph of the Will, Day of Freedom, Olympia. These are enormously influential and notorious pieces of film work. They're not the sorts of things you're likely to have been seeing with friends or to encounter on Netflix or to see at a film festival. We're all arriving at this as contemporary viewers who won't have had a casual acquaintance with these films, although we'll have been aware of them. And of course, they come now to us coupled with their origination in efforts towards Nazi propaganda and Nazi Germany at the time. It's a tricky task to be getting on board to take on these important films and to be thinking about them and what they're used for and what their formal virtues are as objects of art and you know constructions of motion pictures. Mark, I thought you might set the stage for us a little bit and how we might come at this as contemporary viewers and as critical viewers of this important work. Absolutely. I think this is completely seminal work of the 20th century that everybody should know and represents a turning point in cinema history that unfortunately gets repeated at times, or at least partially repeated at times. The, the movement toward fascist aesthetics is comprised of a, a weave of a variety of contexts, all of which we'll spend some time with. One is the story of modernism. We've talked about modernist aesthetics and their significance. The, the Nazis defiantly uh, uh, despised modernism, literally collected modernist works and put them on display in order to then destroy them. So that's that's part of the story. What they espoused instead was a, a kind of realist and escapist aesthetics, although that was sometimes flavored with truly virulent propaganda. It also has to do with Hitler's background. He had interest in being a painter and an architect. And in many ways, uh, the rise of fascism in the, in the 30s led to... Uh, very important aestheticization of politics and politicization of aesthetics. We'll say much more about that. We'll also engage the artistic career of Lenny Riefenstahl. She's a hotly debated artist even today. Uh, some people refuse to even call her an artist. She always denied having any kind of ideology to her work. She, she absolutely claimed herself as an artist. She had a very interesting career arc from work as a dancer, a successful career as a dancer, and then moving into films and starring in very potent genre in German cinema called mountain films. We'll talk about that and their relationship to fascist aesthetics. Uh, and then of course becomes a, a filmmaker and one of Hitler's favorites. And we'll see uh, the films that Sam mentioned and really go into some of the details of fascist aesthetics, which uh, have something to do with uh, monumentalism and a sense of scale that puts you in a position to be in great awe. It bar harkens back to uh, classical aesthetics. Uh, so we'll be problematizing some of the, uh, let's say, nostalgia for classical aesthetics in the classical era. has a lot to do with uh, reclaiming a fictive past. The, when, when you see the beginning of Triumph of the Will, it's almost literally saying, let's make Germany great again. And the aesthetics continue from there to position the viewer, not so much uh, as 
subject with other people, but subject to this larger ideology and trying to find your place within this larger ideology. And we'll, we'll say much more about the use of space and uh, the narrative framework for the film. Please pay attention to that when you see the film, how it's introduced. And then that leads into discussion of the, the other Riefenstahl films and Olympia, which is really astonishing from a different time period. She was hired to record the 1936 Olympics in Berlin, which was supposed to be the crowning achievement of Aryan ideology. And uh, we'll see that there's some very interesting tensions and contradictions in that work. And sum up what we can learn from these things and other aspects of Nazi media attention of the era. And recognize that, sadly, in much of the world today, there's a very strong reattachment to fascist ideas. And they... they almost literally can't happen without some kind of mediated support. There's a famous slogan that history doesn't really repeat itself, but it rhymes. And I think looking at these texts and these contexts in a rigorous way gives us some very interesting critical footholds to think about contemporary culture as well. Having that critical distance is, of course, a key part of being able to have a thoughtful approach to texts like this. But it's worth remembering, too, and as someone who saw Triumph for the Will, not as a young person who was unformed, but as, as an adult for the first time, was really struck by how disarming the footage is where we see the people on the streets and the children waving to Hitler. And we're prepared for him to come across as a monster and for these people to come across as monsters because we're girded for this to be propaganda. But of course, the incredible force of it is that it is so disarming. It really provides a bridge for the viewer's sympathy to extend and feel normalized in this context and to resonate with the emotions of the people on screen. And it looks not so much like some distant land with people's foreign ideologies. It looks like 1940s, 1950s America in the heartland. And that kind of very Americanness of the feel of the movie is one of the backdoor channels that it takes to grab hold of the audience. And the other sorts of enticing features of these movies, you know, especially in some of the famous sequences, say in Olympia, where the film very beautifully and effectively extols the beauty of the human form and the beauty of human motion. And of course, it's working on its way towards extolling a certain kind of ennobling of purity and a kind of abstraction from particulars of human identity that are simultaneously inviting you know, and, and, and can resonate with one's sort of natural aesthetic tendencies while opening this gateway for access to your sentiments to, you know, to put you on hold in a way that uh, exposes you to, to the drawbridge for propaganda. And for a viewer coming, coming to this today, those cinema effects are, are recognizable and very seamless. You know, it, it sort of gets you to let your guard down. It's, it's very true, and it's, it's meant to be an invitation to recognize yourself as a key part of the new Germany, not to be at Hitler's level by any means. And it's, it's fascinating how it creates a kind of what I would call a mise en abeam between having this cinematic proximity to Hitler, but needing to find yourself someplace in this vast monumental 
landscape and spectacle. We'll also be uh, gesturing toward some other kinds of cinema that existed. Uh, German cinema during the Third Reich was not entirely different from Hollywood cinema. A lot of it was very escapist, a lot of musicals, some comedies, but there were some key texts that we'll point to that were fundamentally important to the other side of that invitation to be part of the Reich, which was the designation of an other that they blamed for Germany's victimization at some level. They certainly uh, blamed for the rise of this, uh, what they thought was really ugly modernist art, um, which of course is the Jews and the, the campaign to uh, familiarize people with this ideology often was also included in cinema. So we'll take a look at some clips from a uh, film from 1934, very famous anti-Semitic historical drama. So it's not painting itself as contemporary uh, called Yud Sus. Uh, Joseph Goebbels, who was the minister of propaganda for Hitler, had very different ideas about how cinema should be used and uh, did pr produce some quite virulent um, anti-Jewish documentaries, including a film called The Eternal Jew. We'll look at some of that. Hitler really wanted to soft pedal things more and, and make it uh, just an inclusive environment for the true German people. So there's really so much to reflect on uh, regarding the contemporary world as we find it. And uh, I think you'll, you'll find the material compelling, uh, not exactly what you were expecting, in some ways all too sadly what you were expecting, but uh, a true history lesson that's worth attending to. So for students who are coming for the first time to have a look at Riefenstahl's films in particular, but the other ones as well, you should take your critical contemporary eye, but try to step back and feel the call of the invitation, the hearkening that it gives to the audience, because it's, uh, it's real. You'll feel the force of that there as well. And we will pick up our discussion of this together in class on Wednesday.